Uh, let's go back to our text this week. Um, we are in uh, Revelation chapter 16. We've been talking about the sixth vile judgment. Uh, the drying up of the river Euphrates. Last week I focused upon that river. The river Euphrates is extor- its historical significance. And other places it appears in the scriptures and why the drying up of that river would be important in terms of the chess pieces on the board uh, at the end of time in God's plan and purpose and the consummation of all things. The sixth vial judgment is not the battle of Armageddon. The sixth vial is not Armageddon. It's the gathering. It's the gathering and the putting of the pieces in the proper places on the board. That's the judgment, the gathering of the nations, just like the Old Testament prophesied. None of this is new. The seventh vial, the great earthquake, that's the opening of battle. That's the cannon shot fired on Fort Sumter. The seventh seal, the great earthquake, when the cities of the nations fall, and then the sentence is rendered there against the world system in 17 and 18, and then we get to chapter 19, and the Son of Man splits the heavens, and the battle is ended. So keep that in mind. I want you to look for a moment in the Old Testament to start things out. I want to make a point here about the Bible and about Bible versions that kind of comes up as a result of our study last week about the Euphrates River. We talked about significant battles in history like Carchemish where the Egyptians and the Assyrians united to try to stop Babylon. The Babylonians defeated these armies and as a result uh, became the premier world power and that involved armies marching through Israel. Very significant things in history related to Uh, the river Euphrates, but turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. We're going to look at verse 29. Um, We talked last week about chronological bridges that establish the chronology, bridges between the Bible and secular history that establish the chronology and the accuracy of the Scriptures uh, that show the Scriptures to agree with archaeological and undeniable historical data. And we talked about 605 B.C. being one of those bridges. It was the fourth year of Jehoiakim when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians in what remained of Assyria at Carchemish. Sometime prior to that, Pharaoh Necho out of Egypt marched through Israel to come to the aid of what remained of the Syrian armies. The Syrian capital of Nineveh, just like the prophet Nahum prophesied, fell. It fell violently to the Babylonians and and it was a kind of a confederation of the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians. It fell in 612 B.C. and it fell violently. Nahum described it as it, as as an incident whereby Nineveh's skirts would be pulled up over their faces and their shame would be uh, displayed to the world. And that's exactly what happened. That prophecy was fulfilled. A prophecy from 150 years earlier. That happened in 612 B.C. What remained of Assyria uh, fled and tried to establish a capital at Haran. And in 609, the Egyptians came to the aid 
of this remnant of Assyria that was no longer a kingdom to try to prevent that from happening. And as they marched through the land, that's where King Josiah went out to try to prevent Pharaoh's army from coming through. Pharaoh said, look, I don't have a problem with you. The Lord is sending me up here to fight. Let me be. Josiah wouldn't hearken. And as a result, they went to battle right there at Megiddo, Tel Megiddo, the site of what's called Armageddon here in Revelation 16. And the young righteous king, only in his 30s, perished as a result. It's my opinion that the reason he was insistent upon fighting, it was a cover. It was a distraction from his real purpose, which was to get the ark out of Jerusalem and to hide it because he knew what was coming. The prophecies had already been given that Babylon would come and take the city. He already knew that. And so he was acting to get that ark hidden. And the ark's never been found. It was never found. It was not there uh, you know, after the first temple was destroyed and then later it was rebuilt, the ark was not in the temple when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem. It's, nobody knows where it is or what happened to it. But this is the context of that here in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 29. It says, in his days, this is the days of Josiah, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates And King Josiah went against him and he slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. So here we're told that the king of Egypt went up against the king of Assyria. Okay, We know historically that at that battle, it was the Egyptians aligned with what remained of the Assyrian army that had been overthrown at Nineveh that went up against the king of Babylon. They went up against Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, the father of Nebuchadnezzar. The scriptures say here that Egypt went up against the king of Assyria. Okay, so on the surface, it looks like, well, maybe there's a problem or maybe there's a contradiction here in the scriptures. And there are men who produce these modern versions of scripture that'll go in and actually change the text Because they say, oh, you know, on the surface, this can't be right. If you look at the New King James Version here in verse 29, it says that Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the aid of the king of Assyria. So it says the exact opposite of what we see here in the King James. Here we're told that the Egyptians went through the land to go fight against the king of Assyria. But the New King James says they went to to the aid of the king of Assyria. The reason I bring this up is because it's an example of what happens a lot of time with these modern versions. You've got to be careful with these so-called Bible scholars and these scholarly commentaries and these modern Bible versions because this happens time and time again. In this instance, there's an alteration made in the text based upon an assumption that the historical documents of some other nation are correct and have no scribal errors over the God-inspired scriptures. There are Babylonian military records that have been preserved. Parts of them have been rotten, rotted off. There are parts of the text that are no longer visible because they've been faded. And so when you've got a Babylonian historical record, there will be words missing and faded out. And you have to do a lot of guessing to try to figure out exactly what it is saying. And in one of these Babylonian records, it talks about Egypt coming up to fight. And then the words are faded out. 
And those that have analyzed those documents make the guess, the educated guess, that it is saying that they came to fight against Assyria. It's not even visible because it's been faded. So the New King James translators literally changed the text based upon the historical document of a secular nation and the restoration thereof that was conjecture anyway because nobody's really sure what it says. That's the basis for this change. Now we know from other records that yes, the Egyptians fought a great battle and lost to the Babylonians and that was the end of the Egyptian empire. Egypt has been insignificant in world history since that day. We know that. But it's absolutely true if you know what happened at Nineveh a few years earlier that the Egyptians did go fight the king of Assyria. The question is, who was the king of Assyria? Turn to uh, uh, Ezra. Ezra chapter 6. I love how the, the King James itself, when accused of being in error, always answers those charges within itself. It doesn't even have to be defended. Ezra chapter 6 verse 22. Listen to this. And this is talking about the Jews after they've returned to the land. Who was it that gave them permission to return to the land? Anybody remember he was prophesied by name? Cyrus, Cyrus the king of who? Of the Persians that overthrew the Babylonians. Cyrus, the king of Persia, took over the territory of the ancient Babylonian kingdom, took over the territory of the ancient Assyrian kingdom, had influence even down into Egypt. Cyrus, the king of Persia. And this is what Ezra is talking about here, the dedication of the temple. And this is after Cyrus. This is in the days of Darius II. Uh, it says, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. You see, God turned the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria was Darius, the Persian king. Because it was very common when you conquered a kingdom in ancient times, you took the title as the king of that kingdom. The king of Assyria in 2 Kings is Nabopolassar and soon to be replaced by his son Nebuchadnezzar because he dies. The king of Assyria is Babylon. So absolutely, Pharaoh Necho went up against the king of Assyria. You see, when the Babylonians sacked the Assyrian capital at Nineveh, the Babylonian king became the king of Assyria. He was now the king because what remained was just a scattered army that had no power. So the biblical text is accurate here. And it just baffles me how these men think they can correct it and they ascribe more value to secular historical documents that can't even be verified than they do to the scriptures which can be verified by, by way of uh, uh, biblical, detailed prophecy. And we are guilty of the same thing in the church. We're guilty of the same thing. We give the lost man the benefit of the doubt before we give it to our Christian brother and sister. We're no different than these Bible scholars. And you saw that happen recently in a political election down in Alabama when some charges were just thrown out there that couldn't be verified against a righteous man and immediately Christians assumed them to be true, condemned this man, and gave these wicked 
Jezebel women the benefit of the doubt over a righteous man that had a long history and testimony of standing up for God's word in public. That is shameful. And before we start criticizing these Bible translators, and I'll be the first to do so, we need to make sure that we're not those who give the lost man, the homos and the faggots and the lesbians and the sodomites and the liberals and the social justice warriors and the trannies the benefit of the doubt over our brother and sister in Christ. That's shameful. That is to mock the new commandment Jesus gave his disciples. He said you are to love one another. And nowhere was that ever in the context of just going out and loving on everybody. That's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. King Jehoshaphat, the righteous king in the Old Testament, who reigned contemporaneously with King Ahab and King Ahab's wicked sons, was rebuked for loving on the wicked. The prophet said, should you love those that hate the Lord? Therefore, wrath is upon you. So let's don't be like these Bible scholars when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The point here is we can trust God's Word. We can trust the Word of God that was given to us in a language we can understand. And it was translated by men who actually believed this was a supernatural book from God. Not people that just thought it was some other book. Or not people that made changes because they needed to make sure they could get a copyright and get their little paycheck for it. Just a side note related to what we talked about last week. Let's go back to Revelation 16. I'm sorry, I like the word faggot. I'll say it from the pulpit. It's the truth. Some context, it's a bundle of sticks. Others, it describes wickedness according to God. Sodomite's a good one too. It's amazing how People get so worked up over words, but they could care less about blood being spilt in the streets. They could care less about uh, immorality left and right. They could care less about uh, the name of God being mocked, but God forbid we use tough language. God forbid the president calls countries, some of these countries exactly what they are. I don't know how else you would describe some of it. I mean, those of you who've seen the electrical wires in Kathmandu or have smelled... The smell of the river in Dhaka. I mean, I'd probably choose a less bellicose form of persuasion to describe that. But uh, the only synonym I could think of is hellhole. But there's plenty of that on this planet. Uh, And it's reality. We need to be those that call things like they are. But at the same time, as the great Confederate general says, there's never any excuse for profanity. So that's a lesson we can learn as well. No excuse for that. Uh, But anyway, I don't mean to get sidetracked. Revelation 16. The sixth angel poured out his vial, verse 12, upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up. We talked about that last week, the significance of that river. That the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So this judgment is a drying up of a river. It's the removal of an obstacle, a physical geographical obstacle. Therefore, preparing the way for the kings of the east to come and be gathered with the rest of the kings of the earth against Jerusalem and against Messiah. So it's the removal of an obstacle that allows for gathering. And that removal of an obstacle is a judgment from God. 
We have this phrase here, the kings of the east. Now, when the Bible prophesies events, you can always look back in history and see types of these prophecies fulfilled. You, with biblical prophecy, you have types, and then you have what I call an antitype, which is the ultimate fulfillment. For example, and we've talked about this before, when Isaiah prophesied to King Ahaz about a sign that would prove God would overthrow the two kings that were coming against uh, Judah. God said, I'm, you ask me a sign, I'll show it to you. And then Ahaz, who cared, you know, cared nothing about God until that moment, all of a sudden wanted to be righteous, said, I won't dare ask the Lord for a sign. And the prophet says, well, I'm going to give you one. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. His name will be called Emmanuel. And before that child is old enough to know right from wrong, the enemies that you fear won't even exist anymore. Well, ultimately that prophecy was fulfilled and Jesus, before he was old enough, before he went and taught in the temple, the northern kingdom was gone and the Syrians were gone. But there was a type because in the very next chapter, Isaiah goes into the prophetess. It's apparent, it seems that his first wife must have died. And so immediately after that, he took a virgin as a second wife, went unto her, they had a child and they, they named him Marshal Ahasbaz. And before that child was old enough to know evil from good, those kings were gone. So there was a type. You know, the Bible speaks about Elijah the prophet coming in the last days to preach to Israel to prepare the way of the Messiah to come. There was a type of that. John the Baptist was a type of that. So sometimes we see these types appear in... Um, uh, the Bible itself. When we look at a prophetic event like the rapture, there have been types of the rapture in history. Enoch before the flood, before God judged the world, was a type of the rapture. He was taken out of the world before the judgment. Noah was a type of Israel. He was preserved through the judgment like Israel will be in the last times. It, when you come to Antichrist, you even see some of this in Daniel. There have been types of, uh, in, in history that have uh, resembled what Antichrist ultimately will be. One of the most famous in Jewish history was a, a, Seleu a, a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes who did things in the temple that were types of what Antichrist himself will do. And even the prophet Daniel prophesies Antiochus himself and then he telescopes until the end of time and gives us Antichrist. You know, Isaac, when he was willing to lay down his life as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Isaac was not a small child. Isaac was probably in his upper teens or 20s. Isaac was a willing victim there. He was willing to lay down his life as a sacrifice. He was a type of Jesus Christ or what Messiah would be. And Abraham prophesied that when he said God will provide himself. Not for himself, himself as a lamb. You miss that if you get into these modern Bibles. You miss that prophecy there that's clear in the Hebrew. John the Baptist, as I mentioned, there, there's been a type of the kings of the east crossing the, the Euphrates and coming in mass. Hordes. There's been a type in history. A type of what this will be. Does anybody know who they were? When you land... In the international airport in a city called Ulaanbaatar, 
the picture of the most famous of these kings is right there on the airport. Uh, right there in the airport. Huge picture. So that basically 600 years later, the people of this country, Mongolia, still talk about him. His name was Genghis Khan. The Mongols. Genghis Khan was the founder of the Mongol Empire. And after his death, that empire of the kings of the east became the largest contiguous land empire in the history of the world. The square mileage of the Mongolian Empire during the Middle Ages was larger than Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Persia, and even the Roman Empire. It stretched from the Danube River, which is all the way over there in Germany, down uh, uh, from, from China all the way to the Danube in the west, and then it, its border in the south was the Euphrates River. Um, and it had an empire for close to two centuries. They were horsemen, they were brutal, and they were known for just straight-up destruction. It's kind of interesting when you look at the Mongol history in terms of a type here, um, between A.D. 1244 and 1312, this would have been after uh, Genghis Khan's death with his sons, the Mongols actually crossed the Euphrates River and they invaded Syria and that part of the Middle East called the Levant. They were able to capture the cities of Aleppo and Damascus and the Mongols actually raided the Gaza Strip They raided the West Bank and they actually raided the city of Jerusalem. The Mongols actually rode into Jerusalem and raided the place. So you've got already a type in history of what this is. These massive armies, these massive armies from the east just running roughshod, crossing the Euphrates and being gathered down into Israel. It's happened before. It's happened before. There's an interesting tidbit from Genghis Khan's life that kind of puts to silence those who would mock the Old Testament chronology. You know, people look at the Bible and they say, man, how could men have populated the earth so quick in the book of Genesis? You know, from, from, from Adam to Noah was only 1,656 years, and yet the Bible speaks of the world being full of people. How is that even possible? Where did Cain get his sister from? Or, you know, they'll mock the, the, uh, the rapid growth of the human population after the flood. You know, from Noah, from the end of the flood until Babel, where, you know, all these people were gathered together. The Bible doesn't say how many, but it, it implicates that it was a pretty good size of people because they then went out and spread across the earth and, and you know, and became the fathers of the modern nations. Well, that was only 140 years from the end of the flood until Babel, where did all these people come from? Some people would teach that there were, uh, you know, possibly other people created and other families that were started in other parts of the earth, even though the Bible says that Eve is the mother of all living. So they'll mock the biblical chronology, but when you look at the life of Genghis Khan, it puts all this to silence. It silences all of this. Genghis Khan only lived to be 65 years old. He outdid Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Genghis Khan had 3,000 wives and concubines. Three times what Solomon had. 
It is said that he had somewhere between one to 2,000 children. And today, when you look at DNA, 0.5% of the world's population is descended from Genghis Khan's DNA. So in only 850 years, that man's DNA is reflected in 35 million people. Is the Bible that far off base? I mean, this is flat out out there as information. I mean, you can even see this information on Wikipedia. They don't deny it. In 850 years, 35 million people have DNA linked to one man and his wives. Now, between Adam and the flood was almost twice that period of time. That's kind of puts to silence. You know, there's lots of things that happen in history. There are people that live to be great ages that never get reported in the media that put these things to silence. We've talked about it before. When you think about the Mongols, and their, I don't want to get into history lesson so much today, but it's a type of what I think we're going to see here with the kings of the East and Revelation in the future. Everything that God prophesies for the end of time, He's given us a glimpse of it in history. You know, he did this with Jesus. Jesus told the people that were standing by, some of you standing here will not die until you see the kingdom of God coming in power. Six days later, Jesus took James and John and Peter up to a mountain and he was transfigured before them. They saw him in his kingdom, in his glory. There was a type. So Jesus spoke the truth. God gave Israel a clear sign that Jesus was the Messiah when He did miracles. Because the Bible says that in the last, in the kingdom, God Himself will do the same miracles that Jesus did. There was a type. It's kind of an interesting story in terms of the church regarding Genghis Khan's grandson. He was another famous Mongol named Kublai Khan. Okay? In the life of Kublai Khan, you look back and you see that the church is probably one of the greatest missed opportunities of the church with regard to the Great Commission in all of history. And it's resulted in that part of the world being, even to this day, one of the darkest places on the planet. But it's not because the church wasn't given opportunity to go and bring the light. This is a little known story that most people don't know about. Genghis Khan's grandson had actually heard about the gospel through whispers from scattered Mongolian tribes. You know, he had united the Mongolian tribes together and there had been this talk of this God of this Jesus. There was whispers that got into his court. And he was very curious. You see, some of the Mongolian tribes had actually been evangelized. Now, church history books will tell you that they were evangelized by what they call Nestorian Christians from the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, the Nestorians were supposedly heretics that followed the teachings of a Nestorius. And he taught that Jesus had two separate natures. He had a divine nature and he had a human nature, but that these were separate and independent of each other. And the church, the Catholic church, determined that this was heresy. 
Now, we would believe that Jesus' divine and human natures are intertwined, that they're one nature. He's 100% God and 100% man, not 50% God, 50% man. However, Catholics and Catholic history books, when you look at church history textbooks, you've got to be careful because basically after the apostolic church, from about A.D. 312 all the way to the Reformation, what you're getting is Roman Catholic history. History as recorded by the Roman Catholics. And then from the Reformation till today, it's mainly Protestant history. So you've got to take it with a grain of salt. When the Romans recorded history, the Roman Catholics, and the priests and the scribes and the popes and all these, they threw around that word heretic, just like millennials throw around the word racist today. They threw around that word heretic just like millennials throw around hate and racist today. So when the Roman Catholics call people heretics, makes me wonder if these weren't the true preachers preaching the gospel. And there's a lot of cases where people that were called heretics, when you go and look at their writings and you look at the accounts of their work, These were Bible-believing, Baptistic Christians. So when the history books say it was Nestorians that took the gospel to Mongolia, I take that with a grain of salt. But the gospel had been spoken there. And it got into the ears of the Mongol king, Kublai Khan. And so in the, I think it was uh, around 1266 maybe, Not Marco Polo, the famous traveler, but his father and his uncle had made a journey on the Silk Road and had made it all the way to China. And they actually met Kublai Khan. And he sent a request with them to take back to the church, the Roman church. It said this, I would like for you to send me 100 men skilled in your religion, to teach us so that I can be baptized and then all my barons and my great men and their subjects. And then there will be more Christians here than you have in your parts. He actually sent a request to be taken back to the Pope and say, please send us a hundred missionaries so we can become Christians. Well, it took some time For the Polos to get back. But when they did, the Pope at the time, Gregory X, blew it off. Just blew it off. And a few years later, when young Marco actually joined them and they went back, here's what the Pope did. He sent them some holy oil from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And he sent two friars. Two friars from the church and 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 a thing of holy oil. That was his response. And... About halfway through the journey, the two friars turned around and went home because the weather, because the weather. They just turned around and said, we ain't doing this. And they turned around and went home because of the weather. When the party finally arrived back in Beijing, it was 1294. It took some time. I'm not exactly, I think that 1266 I said earlier was wrong. But when they finally got back to Beijing in the Mongol court in 1294, they found out that Kublai Khan had died and that the Mongols in the meantime had turned to Tibetan Buddhism because the Christians never came back. They got tired of waiting and they turned to Tibetan Buddhism. 
course, the polos did deliver the holy oil. It was delivered. That, that's the most important thing, right? They got the holy oil there. And as a result of that missed opportunity, Tibetan Buddhism has dominated the Far East ever since. And you want to talk about wicked and demonic and dark. Interestingly, though, when you look at the Tibetan Buddhist world, there's only one place in modern times that the gospel has ever made any inroads. Not in Tibet. Not, in, not much in the Tibetan tribes in Nepal. Not, certainly not much in Ladakh. There's only one place in modern history that the gospels made any inroads, and that was in Mongolia. In Mongolia, there is a church. There's a Bible. There are believers. So, in a way, God honored the request of the Mongols centuries ago, and that's the one place in the Tibetan Buddhist world today that the gospels made any inroads is in Mongolia. There's an interesting book. Now, I don't even know if I'd be willing to to, uh, loan this out called Sharing Christ in the Tibetan Buddhist World. This is a treasure, and I think it's out of print, but it tells the history of how the gospel got into Mongolia and why it made inroads there and not in other places and the great challenges that exist today for preaching Christ in places like Ladakh. Buddhist tribes in Nepal, <laughs> Tibet, places that we've gone. This is an incredible book. And uh, I might be convinced to loan it out, uh, but there's a history of people not giving me my books back, and that kind of, it's hard for me to, to deal with. But uh, if you're interested, uh, talk to me. Talk to me. We can trade something. You know, in, in Tibetan, in ancient Tibet, you know, the... Tibetan Buddhism was birthed in shamanism and witchcraft. And basically, Buddhism was mixed in with all that mess. And the same demons, the shamanistic religions were worshiping, now became the demons that go out and convert everyone to Buddhism. Wicked, dark, not... You know, the Americans that talk about peaceful, tranquil Buddhism have never been to a Buddhist country. The people that uh, think about... The Dalai Lama and how peaceful and righteous he is are completely ignorant of his role in persecuting Christians and encouraging that. And in all the money he heaps upon himself. Wicked. But in the ancient, uh, ancient Tibet in China, there are legends. Legends that one day the ground's going to open up. And Genghis Khan and his Mongol hordes will reemerge and harass the world again. Kind of interesting when you think about Revelation chapter 9. The bottom, the, you know, the, the, the angels loosed at the river Euphrates who lead a supernatural army that are described as horsemen, 200 million. Any legend, any fiction retains some element of truth. You know, all of these legends and mythologies in ancient Rome and Greece about the gods and the demigods, where do you think they got that from? That's because of what happened there in Genesis chapter 6. The angels came down and cohabitated with women and their offspring were mighty men of renowned giants. You know, where do you think those legends came from? The gods were the fallen angels that came down. The demigods like Hercules and Perseus were these offspring. 
So even these myths and legends retain an element of truth, and it's interesting that there are those legends that one day that Mongol horde's going to reemerge from hell and harass the world, a mighty army. Well, that's, that's what Revelation 9 tells us, that supernatural army that goes ahead of the natural armies that come to Armageddon. Infernal destruction. We talked about that in Revelation 9. But in all these things, the great river Euphrates is significant. It is and it remains a great point of contention in the world precisely because it is the northern boundary of the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. That's why it's a stumbling stone. That's why it's a burden because it's land God gave. God says this is for these people. And men don't like to be told what to do by God. In verse 12, God dries it up and, it, and prepares the way to gather the nations who hate Israel. To bring them there, the kings of the east and the kings of the whole world, to bring them there and to tell them to their face that Israel, number one, is a nation, that Jerusalem is its capital, and that its borders extend far beyond the 1967 borders, far beyond what the British and the UN Security Council claim. Look at Joel, the prophet Joel. And we've gone into these prophecies before when we talked about the fifth trumpet judgment, the locust army, the demons from hell. Joel chapter 3 verse 2 I, God speaking, will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now the valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley. It runs... Uh, it runs between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount and it turns and it goes out and basically descends several thousand feet down to Jericho and the Jordan River Valley. That's the Kidron Valley. And we're going to talk about the place of Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley probably next week and how those valleys come in and they connect and you know these armies are gathered there to march on Jerusalem um, what we see at Armageddon is not a single battle per se. It's a campaign that brings the nations down to Jerusalem where God is going to say, these are my people and this is my city and you're not coming in here. Look at Daniel 11, kings of the east. None of these things in Revelation are new. They agree with the Scriptures. That's what most Israelis and Jewish people who've never looked at the New Testament for themselves don't comprehend. Jesus, who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, and the apostles preached the Tanakh. They preached the Hebrew Scriptures. They preached the Torah, the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and the Ketubim, the writing. They preached these things as the Word of God. They recorded the fulfillment of these prophecies, and in accordance with what Jesus promised His disciples, the Holy Spirit would come. He would bring to your mind the things that have happened. And He will tell you about things to come. Prophecy that you will write down. 
And these prophecies that were revealed to the Jewish apostles that they wrote down were in complete accordance and agreement with what had already been prophesied and none of it was new. None of it was new. Here we have an example. Kings of the East. What in the world would that mean? Daniel chapter 11 is an interesting chapter. We've talked about it before. Um, When you get into chapter 11, Daniel is shown some specific prophetical events that would take place um, in uh, and affect Israel in the time of the third kingdom, the Greeks, where Alexander would come up and then he would suddenly die as a young man and his kingdom would be split into four kingdoms that historically happened. And then two of those kingdoms, the king of the north in Syria and the king of the south, the one in, 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 uh, in the kingdom in Egypt, would be fighting each other over a period of years, crisscrossing through uh, the land of Israel, and it would just be turmoil. And Daniel prophesies all of these things very specifically long before they took place. And it's so accurate in terms of its fulfillment that people have tried to say there must be two Daniels. There's no way Daniel could have known, the Daniel of the first chapters of Daniel could have known this stuff in chapter 11. So they say, well, there must have been two Daniels. Kind of ridiculous. But in chapter 11, he starts tracing the history of the battles. He prophesies what is now history of the the struggle between the king of the north and the king of the south. And and, and how that involves Israel. And as you get down toward the the end of the chapter, you have the king of the north. This... uh, uh, um, uh, vile king of the north from Syria that will do things involving the temple, desecrate the temple, and 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 uh, persecute the people of Israel. And he's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And then when you get down into verses uh, thirty-three and thirty-four, he telescopes to the time of the end. So you know suddenly he's moved from a type of antichrist to Antichrist himself. And the proof is in verse 35. And he talks about Jews falling and being tested and and, and many of them being made white even to the time of the end. So now we've jumped to the time of the end. And in verse 36 he says, And the king shall do according to his will. So no longer are we talking about the king of the north, Antiochus. And the proof is as we read down and read about this future king and the things he's going to do regarding Israel, we get to verse 40. Now remember, before Daniel telescopes, he's talking about the king of the north and the king of the south. And this Antiochus, this type of Antichrist, is the king of the north. Then he telescopes to the time of the end, and in verse 40, and at that time, which is the time of the end, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north. So now we got proof that he's talking about someone else because Antiochus was the king of the north. So now we've got somebody who's being harassed by both the king of the north and the king of the south. At the time of the end shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he, that is this vile king, will enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. 
And then it talks about different people that will escape and how he'll have power over wealth. And so we have a military campaign here that culminates in Armageddon. But look what happens. After he's fought with the king of the north and the king of the south, and he's uh, increased his riches and gone forth furiously to destroy, what does it say in verse 44? But tidings out of the east and out of the north will trouble him. Tidings out of the east and the north will trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to take away many. Tidings out of the east. There's an army coming from the east and the north. And they're coming because the river's been dried. And he hears about this. So he goes out to meet them and to fight them. And then it tells us that he will plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. His headquarters will be there in Jerusalem, right there on Mount Zion. And he'll go out to meet these kings. And so what you happen is the gathering together to fight each other. And then when Messiah steps in, they all turn on him. So you've got kind of a military campaign. Yet he, Antichrist, will come to his end and none can help him. So here we have reference to tidings out of the east. That cross-references what John says. The kings of the east. They're coming. And that's what gets Antichrist a little concerned. And he goes out to meet him. And all the chess pieces are coming into place so that God himself can say checkmate. None of this is new. When we read about this sixth seal, we think of it as God opening a pathway or preparing a, har- a highway for the battle of Armageddon. And that's true. God is preparing a route of invasion. He's opening a highway so the nations can be gathered at that final battle. But that's only half of the equation. The opening of this highway prepares the coming of armies But it's not just a highway for destruction. It's also a highway for restoration. Let's look at Isaiah 11. Let's let's just have some of you read this morning. So we can wake up. Let me pound the pulpit. Maybe it is boring. Isaiah 11, 15 and 16, Daniel, if you'll read that. And then, Gene, if you will read Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. And I'll drink a swig of coffee. Isaiah eleven fifteen and 16. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dryshod. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So God is going to smite the tongue of the Egyptian sea, that's the Nile, in the great river delta, and he's going to shake his hand over the river, The river, 
When you hear the river in the Old Testament or the flood, it's in the context of a river, it's talking about the Euphrates. And he's going to smite it into seven streams so that men can go over dry shop. So the Nile or the delta of the Nile and the Euphrates are going to be such that men can walk over it dry shod. Why? Well, in Revelation, so the kings of the east can come. But here, so that there's a highway for the remnant of God's people to come back into the land, into Messiah's kingdom. So this highway that prepares for Armageddon is going to be used for the people to come home, to come back into Jerusalem, to come back to Messiah's kingdom. A crossroads whereby Israel can return to the land after the battle. Isaiah 19. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. So there's going to be a highway. Israel is not only going to be the capital of the world in Messiah's kingdom, but it's going to be what it's always been in history, a crossroads for the Gentile nations. In history, it's been a crossroads that produces war and destruction and feeds men's jealousies and greed. But in the millennium, it'll be a crossroads that gives access, a crossroads of peace, a crossroads whereby the Gentile nations can come and be blessed. So this same highway that brings in the militaries to do battle will be a highway whereby people can come experience the blessing of Messiah's kingdom. Those from the south in Egypt, those from the north in Assyria, and the Gentiles can come in and go out. Now, there's examples of this in history. There was a great military highway. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, an architectural feat. A very difficult military highway was dug and put in use in a short period of six months during World War II. It took them six months to do it so that they could get armies up there just in case the Japanese have invaded. Who knows what highway that was? I actually rode my bicycle the length of it. What highway did the U.S. Army engineers dig in six months out of straight out of thick wilderness? Nobody knows? You don't know. The Alaska Highway. The Alaska Highway. There was no roads up there to connect Alaska to the contiguous United States by land. It was thick forest, taiga wilderness up in northern Alberta, British Columbia, the Yukon, and the interior of Alaska. And in six months, I believe it was six months, the U.S. military dug that highway so they could move armies up there. And They didn't know if the Japanese were going to invade or not. They had to have a way to move armies. And so a, 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 a highway that was dug for the purpose of moving armies eventually became 
a highway whereby Americans could go and enjoy the blessings and the wildernesses of Alaska. You know, nobody thinks of the Alaska Highway as a military highway today. It's a highway where you can travel and see one of the most beautiful states in the Union. It gives access to the rest of Canada and America, to Alaska. So this is exactly what happens here. A highway is prepared for armies that eventually becomes one whereby the Gentiles can come in and out of Israel. In Isaiah 35... I'm not going to read the whole chapter here, but we're told what the name of this highway will be. It says in verse 4, you know, you can read uh, the entire chapter, but it says um, that the desert will uh, bloom and uh, a highway will be there, verse 8, and, in the, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The name of this highway that crosses the Euphrates will be called the Derech HaChodesh, the way of holiness. The way of holiness. It shall be for though the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err there. And no lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon, shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. So this vile judgment is a judgment upon the wicked, but the foundation of a future blessing, whereby in Messiah's kingdom, people will go there. A highway of peace, a highway of holiness. The redeemed can come to Zion. It's interesting when you look at verse 4, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, He will come and save you. So this is written to Israel. Don't be afraid. Your God will come with vengeance and save you. And that's what He does to the nation there at Armageddon. And the highway itself whereby the wicked come to overthrow Israel, will then be sanctified. Will then be sanctified. There's a, a great messianic signpost here in Isaiah 35. In fact, I shared it with Mindy and Eric yesterday and encouraged them to try to use this in their conversation, any conversation they might have with an Israeli over Shabbat or in this coming week. God says to Israel, don't be afraid, your God will come with vengeance. Your God will come and save you. And when He comes to save you, look at verses 5 and 6. This is what He'll do. This is what will happen when your God comes. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. So in the t context of God coming in vengeance to save Israel in the last days and set up His kingdom, that God, your God Israel, when He comes to save you, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. Now it's interesting. Israel should have known who Jesus was. 
the things that the Bible and the prophets say would characterize God are the very things that Jesus Himself did when He walked this earth. They were signs that He was the one of whom these things were written. Not in His first coming, but He was the one who would come and deliver Israel. It was just not at that time. He had to come once as a Savior, as a star. He would come again as a scepter. But Jesus' miracles were proof that He was God, Israel's God. And it didn't matter. They rejected it. John 9, He healed the blind man. And you remember the Pharisees brought the blind man in and like, you know, what is this all about? And he's like, look, I don't know who this man is. All I can tell you is I was blind, but now I see. This man is a sinner. Well, whether he's a sinner or not, who's ever heard of a man opening the eyes of the blind? And then the Pharisees said, get out of here. We don't even want to hear what you have to say. Who are you to lecture us? Of course, Jesus saw him again and had compassion upon him. Mark 7 Jesus opened the ears of the deaf and loosed the tongue of the dumb man. Just like it was written here. John 5, remember the lame man laid at the pool? Right there in Jerusalem. Took, it didn't have to get into the pool when the water was troubled. Jesus said, get up and walk. Caused him to walk and leap like a heart, just like Isaiah. And the amazing thing is he didn't do these things in a corner. He didn't do them in a backwoods alley or a back, uh, uh, an alley in a, in, a, in a remote village somewhere. Turn to Matthew 21. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The people lined the streets with palm leaves and said, Hosanna to the Son of David. And we often think, well, you know, He rode into the city and that's kind of where the story ends. No. He rode in through the gate of the city and he went right to the temple. And when people were crying, Hosanna, what did he do in the temple? Cleaned it out. Matthew 21, 14. Wait a minute. Matthew, uh, let's start at verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God. This is after he's rode into Jerusalem on a colt. And he cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Now, this wasn't the first time Jesus did that. He did this at the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And he does it at the end of his ministry. So his ministry is sandwiched between two cleanings out of the temple. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He didn't do these things in a corner. He showed he was Israel's God right there in the temple after cleaning it out. And look, and when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. I don't know what clear proof you could get. Blind. Jesus fulfilled Zechariah. He fulfilled Isaiah 35. And He fulfilled Haggai 2. All right there in that one incident. But they were sore displeased. Because they wanted the attention. They wanted to rule. They wanted the people to look to them. Not a whole lot unlike a lot of seminary professors and pastors and Bible scholars today. They don't want to assign the Bible the authority because they want to be the ones that you come to for the truth. They pit authorities against each other so they can be the one to decide which is right. 
They love their power and their greed, just like the scribes and the Pharisees. John tells us why Jesus did the miracles he did to prove that he was exactly what was written there in Isaiah, that he was the Son of God. That's why these things that John wrote were written down. He said, if I, if I told you everything Jesus did in his life, there wouldn't be enough books probably to contain it. But what I have written, I've written down so that you'll know Jesus is the Son of God. So Israel know that that's their God. They got a glimpse of the kingdom there in Jesus. And the things that Jesus did when He was on earth the first time, He'll do again when He sits on His throne following this great battle. Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. You know, when we talk about peace in the Middle East and we talk about, you know, we've got to come up with a two-state solution and... Is, is Jerusalem going to be divided between Israel and the Palestinians and they're going to share the capital? You know, going back to the early, uh, you know, the early centuries, the popes wanted Jerusalem. That's why the Crusades happened. He wanted Jerusalem to be his home, his capital. Still does today. That's why he's out here whining about, you know, this is an international city and you can't claim it to be the capital of this and that. Ezekiel 47, 22 and 23, this is talking about the division of the land in the millennial kingdom. Each tribe is going to have a tract of land and they're parallel like stripes down the, down the, down the, down the land from the Euphrates to the River Nile. Now this is very different than the allotment of the land in the days of Joshua. But it says in verses 22 and 23, you know, we talked about that highway being a highway whereby the Gentiles, Egypt and Assyria can come in and out of Israel, not to fight, not for greed like in this present time, but for peace and access to God's kingdom. And in that context, as we think about that, let's look at this passage. And it shall come to pass that ye shall divide it by lot... For an inheritance on you. This is the land of Israel in the millennium. And to, and to the strangers that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you. People will be having children in the millennium. Okay, Not us. We'll be in our glorified bodies. But the people who survive and who populate this kingdom and who live in this kingdom will populate it. Just like Adam and them populated the earth in the beginning shall beget children among you, and they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel. They shall have inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that in what tribe the stranger or the Gentile sojourns, there shall you give him his inheritance, saith the Lord. So in the millennium, Gentiles, for whatever reason, will be living in Israel, and God says they are to be as if they are Israel. You are to treat them as yourself and to give them inheritance just like you would give them your own. So when we think about the Middle East peace problem, God's solution is a one-state solution, not a two-state solution. God's solution is a one-state solution, Israel. Israel whereby the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob inherit the land that God gave them and they live in that land and they open the doors to welcome Gentiles who can come and live amongst them at peace. That is God's solution. 
And that is why a two-state solution will never, ever, ever, ever work. Never. I don't care what men do. You'll never have a two-state solution. God's solution is a one state and it cannot happen without Messiah. Can't happen. Period. Revelation 16, we've got through verse 12. Kings of the East. Great River Euphrates last week. Kings of the East today. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world. So we have the kings of the east in verse 12, and now this expands this judgment to include the kings of the earth and the whole world, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So this sixth vial isn't just the drying up of the river. It's the drying up of a river that's an obstacle to the kings of one part of the earth. But it also includes the judgment of these wicked devils going out and doing miracles that bring all the kings of the earth together to gather them to that great day of God Almighty. The Euphrates is a big geographical obstacle for the kings of the east. But there are really no geographical obstacles that have to be removed from the north and from the south. From time immemorial, armies and and, and groups have come down from Europe along the Via Maris, I believe they called it in Greek or Roman times, the coastal route through the King's Highway from, from uh, uh, Africa coming up across the Sinai. Those ways are open. Euphrates is removed. Now the ways are open for the kings to come from all over the earth and the, these devil demon spirits are going to go gather them. And they're going to do miracles to gather them. When we look at chapter 14, we, we talked about the vintage, the grapes gathered and cast into the wine press. In verse 16, here we're told that these unclean spirits gather the kings. But then in verse 16, we're told that God gathers them. So God gathers. The fact is God is gathering these rulers and kings of the earth. In these two verses we just read, this is how God does it. He uses these unclean spirits to do it. There's a great lesson here. This is not good versus evil. God's a governor. And at the end of the day, Satan is just a marionette on strings. These unclean spirits are just marionettes who think they are benefiting themselves, but they're just doing God's work. And God's way is going to be God's way, and it's going to take place. So here in verses 13 and 14, you have these unclean spirits gathering the kings, but then in verse 16, it's God that gathers. He gathered them to a place. And then 14, we saw it was God that brought the grace. The, the angel, the angel of God cast those grapes into the wine press. Verse 13 is interesting because it reveals to us what I call the satanic trinity. Here we have the dragon the beast, which is Antichrist, and the false prophet, which was the beast out of the earth in Revelation 13. Here we have the satanic trinity. There's one place in the scriptures where we have a very clear, loud, shouting declaration of the trinity. Oh, the trinity is evident throughout scripture. It's implied 
It's stated in one form or another, but there's only one place in the scriptures where it's declared very, very loudly. And guess what? That's the place that gets messed with the most when translators visit the Bible. 1 John 5, 7. There are three who bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Can't argue with that. It's pretty clear. If you want to know whether you've got a good Bible or not, turn to 1 John 5, 7. If they messed with it and taken the Trinity out, you need to find you another Bible. Of the English versions on the market today, the main ones, you're only going to find it correct in the King James and the New King James. A lot of the other ones mess with it, ESV included. When you look at foreign Bible translations, I'm working on putting up scriptures online for Israelis to see that in the places they travel on what they call the Shavil Homos, the Hummus Trail, there's a Hummus Trail in India and a Hummus Trail in South America. It's the places the Israelis go. I want them to see that the Bible has been translated into the languages of the people they encounter in these places. But you can rest assured that I'm looking at 1 John 5, 7 when I link to a foreign language translation like Nepali or Hindi or any of the others or Spanish. I, was, I had a PDF I wanted to link to of the Hindi Bible and I dug into it this morning and sure enough, 1 John 5, 7 had been messed, messed with. I know it wasn't in the old Hindi Bible that was done in the 1800s, so I'm still working on finding a way to link to that. But there's a clear statement of the Trinity. It's the same with the Satanic Trinity. Just like there's one clear statement, loud spotlight, 1 John 5, 7, here we have that loud spotlight regarding the devil and the Satanic Trinity in Revelation 16. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These spirits come out of those three entities. A satanic trinity. Satan attempts to counterfeit everything God does because he wants to be God. So he's going to do things like God so he convince himself he's God. In a way, it's kind of the greatest form of flattery. When people go out and they, they claim they don't want to be a part of you anymore and then they go out and try to copy what you do. I'll take it as a compliment. There are those that used to labor with us, that used to claim to love Israelis and want to work amongst the Jews, and then they just up and left because they claimed they couldn't work with us anymore. And what do they do when they up and leave? They start giving themselves Hebrew screen names on the computer as if they are going to do it just like we do it. Well, yeah, I'm not going to get mad about that. Flattery. We must not be what they said we were. They wouldn't be copying us. But that's Satan. That's what he does with God. He tries to counterfeit it, but his counterfeits are revolting counterfeit. Frogs. What does the divine trinity look like when it acts together? Turn to Matthew 3. When we see the divine trinity in action, we have a very different picture than what we see here in Revelation 16. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And Jesus, when He was baptized, went straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here you have the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost acting together as a witness before men. You have Jesus 
uh, submitting to baptism. He didn't need to be baptized, but to fulfill all righteousness, submitting, going down into the water. And when he comes up, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit like a dove descends upon him, and the Father speaks out of heaven. Not rashly, not yelling, not angrily, but this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A very, very beautiful picture of the Trinity in action bearing witness to men. The Holy Spirit like a dove. It's kind of interesting in light of the Bible study that Brother Daniel uh, led the other night. We talked about Jonah. The Hebrew word for dove is Yonah. That's what the word Jonah, that's what Jonah means, dove. Jonah, the Hebrew name Jonah means dove, Yonah. So it's easy for me to remember when I speak Hebrew because I know what Yonah means, dove. So and that's how you pronounce Jonah in the Old Testament. Just an interesting side note. But when it comes to the satanic trinity, you don't have a beautiful picture here. Unlike a dove and a voice from heaven, you have unclean spirits like frogs. Frogs croak. They hang out in swampy, dark places. They eat flies. And these are literally belched out of the mouths of the anti-trinity. Is there anything more revolting than that? So though Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, ultimately his nature is revolting and cannot be disguised. We talked about types and antitypes. Did you know there's a type of the satanic trinity in the Old Testament? Turn to Numbers 22. We have a picture of the satanic trinity and its role in the book of Numbers. Numbers 22.41 And it came to pass on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up into the high places of Baal that thence he might see the utmost part of the people. Here we have a type of the satanic trinity. Baal, the false god, the father. Balak, the false king or the false son of Baal who wanted to rule. And Balaam, the false prophet who was hired to deceive. So if we want to get an idea of what it looks like, there it is right there. All of their names start with B. Interesting. I heard somebody say one time, yeah, all their names start with B and that's why none of the books of the Old Testament start with B. Well, that kind of... Kind of ridiculous, especially when you consider that the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible is not called Genesis. It's called Bereshit. means in the beginning. And that starts with the Hebrew letter beta. I mean, not bet. Beta in Greek, but bet. And Balak, Baal, and Balaam start with bet. So I don't know. Sometimes people see things that kind of sound good, but kind of ridiculous. But when you look at the story of Numbers and this type of the satanic trinity here, in the end, when that whole episode with Balaam being hired to curse Israel, in the end, these wicked, this wicked triumvirate could only accomplish what God allowed. And they could only go so far as to entice Israel to sin. And in all of this, still gave testimony of the true Messiah. 
Remember that passage from Numbers where Balaam and all of this still prophesies about the two comings of Messiah, a star out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. You know, even wicked men, God will use when He desires to, to speak truth. And sometimes prophetic truth. Now, sometimes false prophets can say things that are true insofar as God allows. But it doesn't mean they're to be trusted and to be followed. The prophet of God always speaks the truth. He's never wrong. It's amazing how in a lot of charismatic circles, you know, this guy's a prophet and this guy's a prophet. And then he claims something like some revival is going to happen or this is going to happen and it doesn't come true and they just go on following him. If you want to know what it looked like in ancient Israel... Uh, following the false prophets instead of God's prophets, we can see it right now today in the church. This happened in the New Testament with a false prophet prophesying bold truth regarding Jesus' sacrifice for the people. Here you have a man who opposed the Messiah, who did not consider Messiah someone that would do anything other than liberate the Jewish people from the Romans. And yet, in his foolishness, he can only go so far as God allows, and in doing so, he gives testimony of what the true Messiah has to do. John 11. This is Caiaphas, the high priest, who thought he was serving God. They're plotting to get rid of Jesus... John eleven forty nine through 53 And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto to all, You don't know anything at all. You know nothing at all. And this is where they're trying to decide, How are we going to get rid of this Jesus? Now, nor do you consider that is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And he's... This spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. Just like Isaiah 53 prophesied. He didn't even realize it, but he was affirming and prophesying exactly what needed to happen. That one man needed to die for the people that they perished not. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's funny how God will use the wicked for His purposes. Here in the sixth sixth, uh, vile judgment, the wicked are gathered to open a highway and dig a roadbed, thinking they come to fully destroy Israel, but in reality, they're digging the road for their return. They think they're coming to invade. The rivers dried. The kings come from the east and then from the whole world thinking they're come, coming, moving their armies to destroy Israel when in reality they're just laying the roadbed so that the remnant can return in Messiah's kingdom. You know, when we see, and I'm going to end with this today, when we see these evil spirits like frogs, it reminds me that evil cannot hide its true face forever. Evil can appear as an angel of light, but it cannot hide its true identity forever. Eventually, the truth does what? It belches out. Just like these frogs belch out of the mouths of the satanic trinity. 
How can we have this discernment to know evil for what it is when it looks like light, even before it belches out of the mouth and we've been deceived? The Bible tells us how we can have spiritual discernment and how we can strengthen it. We've looked at this before. Let's end on this today. Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. Well, actually, let's look at verse 12, too. Paul's writing to, I mean, Paul's writing here to Jews, particularly those who know the truth about Messiah. Some have professed it, but they're wavering back and forth between following Jesus and believing what's been said or waiting for another or falling back into the sacrificial system, wavering, wavering. Verse 12, for when the... For the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of the strange meat. These were people that should have been teaching others, but they're at a place spiritually where they need to be reminded of the very basic truths. Because they, they can only digest the milk of the word. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong... Meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use, that means through the use of the Scriptures, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Our discernment is strengthened by using the Scriptures, by digesting its strong meat, not just being satisfied with the milk. Not just being satisfied with the first doctrines of repentance and Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead, but the strong meat. And a lot of that strong meat's right here in prophecy so that we can know what's happening and know how we ought to act. Using the Scriptures and digesting its strong meat will allow us to see the frog when others see the white light. When others see the white light, it'll, it'll exercise our senses, senses to where we see the frogs. You know, when somebody says that a white light appeared to them, you need to immediately doubt everything they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everything they say. Or if somebody claims an orb appeared to them, doubt everything they say. Because the white light and the orb underneath is like a frog belching out of the mouth. And when your senses are exercised, you can often see these things. And sometimes it's difficult because you don't want to assume something wrong. You don't want to falsely accuse or think something of someone. And sometimes we need to just be quiet and watch. But when your senses are exercised through the meat of the Word, you can know long before others do. I recall a, a, an incident that took place when I was on my bicycle ride and we stopped in California for the winter and spent some time there and we were attending a church there. And it bothered me that, well, first, you know, I had to work through a situation with a pastor where he had this major questions about why we would go out and be so forward in evangelism. Had to work through all that mess. And then I noticed he started bringing these teachers in every week. When he should have been teaching his own flock, he's bringing in these guest speakers. And some of it was okay, and some of it was a little, you know, milk, a little milky. One guy had a good message about sarcasm, and it, you know, 
as Christians, we ought to be careful with that. And it was a convicting thing. But then one week I walked in and I noticed there was a lady, uh, an older lady, a middle-aged lady with a younger lady in there. And of course, when I found out she was the keynote speaker, I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I don't even, I don't even know what she could possibly have to say that's completely out of order as far as the New Testament in terms of church polity. But I didn't have to wait for her to stand up. The moment I walked in the door, I smelled the frog. I sensed it. I knew there was something wrong here. And she knew too. She knew when we walked in that there was something wrong because this woman was just staring at me the whole time. And I don't, I don't even, I've never seen her before in my life. And I knew what everybody saw as a white light was a nasty, dirty frog. And when she stood in that pulpit, the very first thing that came out of her mouth proved it. And we had a young man traveling with us, and I felt like as a one called by God to speak the truth that I was obligated to rebuke her after church. Not to be mean, but to rebuke her. And to do it by asking a question. And I, I really didn't want to because I knew it would cause a problem, but I, I felt like I had to. The young man that was traveling with us during the middle of her so-called sermonette, it was kind of embarrassing. He stood up. Everything was quiet. And he says, Jesse, I'm not listening to this crap anymore. And he turned and walked out the door. And I'm just like, man, I want to crawl under. He's only 17 years old. So I went and got him afterwards. I said, I want you to learn something here. I want this to be an object lesson to you. I feel like I need to rebuke this lady. She's real nice and friendly and everybody's going goo goo gaga. But I want you to pay attention real close. I'm going to ask her a question. And you watch what happens to her face when I ask her a question. You watch what she does. She'll turn on us. You're going to see it come out. I walked up, introduced myself. I said, I couldn't help but um, think about a statement you made tonight. It was the first thing you said when you began to speak. You said, my God is always in a good mood. And she says, I said, do you actually believe that? And she said, well, of course, or I wouldn't say it. And then the question I asked was, is that the God of the Bible? I don't think so. And then she flew into a rage. The frog belched out of the mouth. So much so that the pastor literally threw me and this young man out of the church, told us not to come back. Showed his face. It's amazing how powerful it is when you ask questions sometime. Mark Cahill just wrote a book about the power of the art of asking a question. He sent it to me. It's a great book if you can get your hands on it. Um, but uh, there's power in asking questions. You know, it's amazing how our president asked a question in a meeting a few days ago about immigration. All he did was ask a question, and it turned the world upside down. That's what questions can do. And questions are good because they bring the frogs out of the mouth. But we can know the difference between good and evil. We can know whether something is good and beautiful or whether it's couching a wicked, swampy, nasty demon frog by exercising ourselves in the Scriptures. These men in the last days are deceived. They're deceived. They have not the ability because God's Word has been stamped out. The church is gone. The Holy Spirit is not here as an indwelling entity. All restraint on evil is gone. And the devils go out to deceive. And they bring men into the land. 
just as God ordained it to be. And you know, in verse 14, and I'll leave us with this, they are the spirits of devils working miracles. In case you haven't figured it out, devils work miracles. Devils work miracles. It says this time and time again in Revelation. Antichrist, the false prophet, they deceive the nations with signs and wonders. So if you're looking for truth in signs and wonders, you're going to be tripped up and deceived. Signs and wonders in and of themselves can be used to deceive. And the way we know whether a sign and wonder is of God or of the evil one is based upon its fruit. We've talked about this before. God's miracles versus Satan miracles. The results are different. Satan counterfeits. The way that I know those trees in my front yard are apple trees is because of the way I know they're not peach trees is because apples come out on them in the summertime. That's how I know they're not peach trees. Now right now I couldn't tell you by looking at their bare branches. But when the fruit comes out we know they're not peach trees. It's the same thing With miracles, the fruit is always different. You know, we know the Holy Spirit. John 15 said the Holy Spirit's number one role would be to come and give testimony of Jesus. The third person of the Trinity gives testimony of the second person. Testimony of Christ. A lot of times these signs and wonders have nothing whatsoever to do with that. But we talked in depth about... God's miracles versus Satan's miracles when we were in chapter 13. and I don't want to go that far. Um, next week we'll get into verse 15. Verse 15 is kind of an intermission. It's a warning. God's, these things are being described at the end of, the day, end of days and then suddenly there's a pause and a warning. A warning not just given to those living at the time but given to us as the church who won't be there in that time. It's a warning. Hey, these devils gather men for destruction. Be warned. Watch guard. We need to do that now because Satan himself seeks whom he may desire. But kings of the east, verse 12, now we've got the kings of the earth and the whole world being deceived. Next week that will bring us to verse 15 and hopefully I can get... Uh, through verse 16, I want to talk about a place. And he gathered them together into a place, which in the Hebrew tongue is called Armageddon or Har, the Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo. That's another significant place in history. There's been some great battles fought there in history. There's been some great tragedies that have happened there in Israel's history. And it's interesting to see uh, what God's going to do. So anybody have any questions? I hope this was beneficial to you. Let's pray and then we can eat. And I'm five minutes before one. That's great. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this word uh, from the scriptures this morning. Father, we're thankful how we can learn from these words. We can see things, types of things in history. We can see prophecy fulfilled. Lord, we can know and rest that you're a God who does, does what you're going to say, what you say you're going to do, that you're a sovereign God who governs all things. And that though Satan and the host of hell and all the kings of the earth would attempt to overthrow you, it's, it's like a, um, a man on a, a treadmill 
in high speed trying to walk the opposite direction. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. And Lord, we thank you for that. I pray you would uh, help us to go out and serve you and be a light today, this week. Lord, help us to exercise our senses through the use of the scriptures to know good and evil. Lord, bless the meal that's been provided and bless our fellowship. Lord, in our fellowship, we can strengthen one another so that we can endure and encounter the world. Lord, we pray you'd come quickly and redeem us. Uh, But until that time, may we be your witnesses. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.